1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host Matt Miller. Every business day we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Alright, let's talk to Phil Palumbo. He's a founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. Phil do we have another leg down in this market? I kinda, I'm kind of, i just not sure how much I should really buy into this bounce off the bottom. What say you?
2: Well, you took the words out of my mouth, right? So we're still in the middle of the storm. And the way I look at it is the Fed said that inflation was going to be transitory. We were the furthest thing from transitory. Oops. The Fed says that we're – not in a recession, we had two back-to-back quarters of negative GDP. As long as I've been doing that, it's always been the definition. I totally get the tight labor market. So technically, probably we're not in a recession now, but everything the Fed is doing and is is embarking on, right? all of that still needs to be absorbed into the economy, and it takes time. It takes six months, it could take a year, it could take a year and a half. So at some point, this data will continue to worsen. When you think about PWC, survey, 50% of firms said they gonna, they're anticipating layoffs. The inverted yield curve, sentiment again, is high. You look at the multiples on Amazon and Apple, forward on Amazon is 56, Apple's 26 times, and both are growing revenue, 1.87%, another one at 7%. So valuations still have to come in, and there is going to be another leg down that will retest the lows that we saw back in June.
3: But what's the, what's the driver of that? retesting uh, of the lows is it the fed hike is it recession worries is it a slowdown in consumption i mean i'm admittedly at fault here because i'm a journalist and i was repeatedly told by traders not everything has a fundamental narrative but why do you sell out of this market when capital flows from other countries and really the rest of the world could actually provide some sort of support
2: and everything has a fundamental narrative if you're a trader in the short term but over the six 12 month period which is a long-term period with everything that the Fed is doing, and, in, and because we're in a tight labor market, it means inflation could be more persistent. Which means the Fed has to act even more aggressively or continue to be aggressive. And all of that is not a positive for stocks. And ultimately what happens is our companies, executives, they're making decisions to lay off. They're gonna, you're going to see analysts re- revise earnings. A revision of earnings of 10 to 20% off of what the 2023-250 prediction is, That brings you at a forward multiple today of 19 to 22 times, which is basically where we were in the middle of January. So that's not attractive thinking about what the Fed is embarking on and how inflation could be sticky.
1: So, Phil, what what do you tell your clients about, you know, given that backdrop, your call there for equities? I mean, I see the... In the first half of the year, the terrible, terrible uh, underperformance of fixed income across the board, whether it's corporates or treasuries, investment grade, high yield, there's nowhere to hide. So if we've got another leg down here, what are you telling your clients these days in terms of if they, if they have some new money to put to work maybe?
2: Well, a couple things, right? So I've been very consistent, whether it's on your show or anywhere else, that we were in a tech bubble that burst. We thought we the, the stock market as a whole was in a bubble Right. That came down 23% peak to trough. Yep. The Tech net got, got, uh, got killed as well. So coming into this year, we were aggressive in cash, and we still are okay. today. Right. So we're being, we're being very patient. You know, Like Buffett says all the time, wait for the perfect pitch. You know, we're not in a situation where we're having a perfect pitch right now. So we're being completely patient in this scenario. We had great returns. Everybody did, right? Yep. Going 19, 20, and 21. So being patient here in 22 with everything going on is a perfectly fine thing to do.
3: I'm still, I, I've I've got to say, I'm curious, though, what else you put your money in. I mean, if you're pulling out of stocks and, let's say, going to cash, for example, does that mean money markets? Does that mean just buying the dollar straight out? Where does that money go?
2: Yeah, for us, we put it in money markets that can yield between 1% and 2%. It's not a great return, especially when you factor in inflation, completely get that. But if we do get a great pitch thrown at us and it's a good time to put capital to work where we can make great returns over a three to five year period, then, I mean, that could happen over the next two to three months. So, Even though the return in cash is not great, it's the opportunity that we're looking for that we believe will will, will, will occur that will make up for any type of low return you're getting in cash today. We also invest in gold. We're also in commodities as a diversified balanced portfolio. And obviously, we have some exposure to equities as well.
1: How, do your clients, Phil, do they ask you about Crypto, Bitcoin specifically? And if so, what do, you, what, do you, what do you tell them?
2: Yeah, the answer is just like I think of growth stocks, right? So when you're investing in growth stocks, you're trying to make a prediction of how much a product is gonna be sold with that company over a long period of time. And and that prediction is just so speculative, right? So when you think about like Bitcoin and Ethereum and others, you're talking about something that is complete speculation. Yep. So why would I invest my client's hard-owned capital in something that is speculative? Yeah, it could turn out great, but also it could turn out terrible, right? So when it comes to investing, I really believe it's about risk and return profile. So I'd rather buy a great company like McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Pfizer, have free cash flow yields of north 6 7% or 8% or more than that, yep. which is two to three times a 10-year treasury, it, with stable earnings, great management, great economic moat. For me, that's how you invest capital, gotcha. and over the long term, you'll succeed. All
1: right, Phil, always great to get uh, your thoughts, your perspective. You've been in this game uh, a long time. We always appreciate your experience. Phil, please. Palumbo, founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management there.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: I always think about like, who would I not want to hang out with at a cocktail party? Here's this person, a B.A. in economics and statistics from Berkeley. And then she goes and gets a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago.
3: I mean, you don't want to hang out with her at a cocktail party? I'm not
1: sure. But Anna Wong is a good buddy of ours. She's a chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. And thanks so much for joining us. I don't mean don't mean to prejudge, but boy, that's some resume there. What are you looking for tomorrow coming out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, despite, you know, in addition to seeing what Tom Keene's going to wear tomorrow?
4: Well I uh, like everybody I'm expecting a hawkish speech I expect that Powell will reassert that the Fed is unconditionally committed to restoring inflation to its price First target, he is going to say that he, he will keep rates in restrictive territory until he sees compelling evidence that inflation is coming down. You know the same, same old hawkish words. Um, but I, I think the interesting thing is how whether the, the whether the speech would be hawkish enough for the markets to kind of quash the the, the thought that you know the, that the Fed is ready to cut rates in 2023. Um, and I think in order to do that. Uh, Powell will have to be extra hawkish, for example, giving some numerical guidance saying that uh, the Fed will not cut until core inflation comes down to close to 2%, something like very concrete like that. But I, I just don't – I see very little chance he will be doing that, though.
1: Well, Anna, I mean you got – you and your team at Bloomberg Economics came out I think a couple months ago, which, which what at the time I thought was just way, way, way out of consensus call – that the Fed might take the Fed fund rates up to 5%. Is is that correct, is, or is that still your call?
4: Yeah, that—that that is still our, our call. And I, I think that by each day, the chance of that call is is increasing. Yeah. Um, we yeah. saw the student loan proposal yesterday, and we estimate that that will boost core inflation by about 0.2 percentage points, with a risk of it being higher. And, you know, just... If you think about the trade-off between price and unemployment, that little bit of 0.2 percentage point extra inflation would cost the Fed to tighten even more in order to generate an 815,000 job losses in order to bring it, you know, to offset those little 0.2 percentage points. So it's not even though it sounds like a little, just a little bit of inflation. In fact, it is pretty like substantial from from if you assume a flat Phillips curve.
3: For the record, Anna, I would love to be at a cocktail party with you. <laughs> can I just say that I would, you know, you're invited to the next one I have. Um, step one, get a bar cart. Step two, yes. invite <laughs> Anna Wong. Um, but, but Anna, what I'm curious about, uh, and what I would probably ask you at said cocktail party, is how much can the Federal Reserve really do here? I mean, you're talking about them. I mean, everyone's talking about them looking to be extra, extra hawkish. But what more can they really even say here? They've already said that. A recession is on the table they're willing to make that that bet that's not their base case scenario but they are willing to do it at the tackle inflation at the expense of a recession the markets have a very high standard for chairman powell tomorrow what else can the federal reserve really do here when they're going meeting to meeting and the data is literally all over the place
4: yeah pretty that's that's a very good question i i think it will be very hard for for him to to be more hawkish than what the market is already expecting tomorrow, he you know he he may be able to say that since since the Jackson Hole theme is about reassessing constraints in the economy, it's all about examining what our star is, what you star is, what all the stars are, <laughs> and and I, I think that that if he is able to say something like oh in fact the our star um, or or tomorrow's research papers are Arguing that our star in fact is substantially higher than 2.5% as the median FOMC particip- participant thinks right now. That if he acknowledged that 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 is very hawkish. If he acknowledged that the the U star is like 6% yeah, natural rate of unemployment and that the Fed will need to generate an unemployment of. Up to six percent. Whoa, that would be really hawkish. But that—that's why I said he would need to offer up some numerical, something numerical and something concrete to to come across as very convincing. And and I, I just don't think that he would do that tomorrow. However, I. Think they have a chance to do it in the September September FOMC where, where they will have an updated SEP. At that point, the, um, I would expect that the neutral rate could be revised up from the current two point five.
1: So, uh, you know, Anna, when you guys came out with that five percent number, it was again way out of consensus. So, kudos to you and, and, and your team here. But one of the things I, I, I look at the you know the labor market, and I still see a pretty strong labor market. Is, is that is it real, do you think? Or do you think there's some underlying weakness there that the Fed is paying attention to that we may not see in the numbers?
4: I I think it's real. I So if you look at the direction of revisions, we just got a major revision on, on jobs yesterday. In fact, it turned out that last year up to earlier this, year the labor market was half a million jobs hotter uh, more than what statistics actually show that's on top of every month we have been getting over revisions i think the issue here um is really productivity um, that's that explains why the gdi the uh, gross uh, domestic income measure of gdp and gdp are telling you different story gdp is saying the economic activity contracted gdi which is an um, uh, income-based measure that use hours worked times wages and corp- corporate profits that's telling you that the economy is doing pretty well and i, I think the thing to bridge them all is that in fact a lot of people are being hired but they're probably less productive than before because people are calling sick and there are a lot of sick leaves that, that that's not being recorded so that's why we also have negative productivity i think i, I, I personally that's my theory of what's going on
3: Anna, I'm going to put you on the spot here, 30 seconds. How much unemployment is too much
4: unemployment? Um, You know, every kind of unemployment is is bad. Even one extra job loss is bad. So, uh, you know, but uh, however, price stability will be important in ensuring a long expansion, as Powell said.
1: All right, Anna, good stuff. Uh, Again, you guys, you and your team, Anna, were just really early and looking increasingly correct uh, with your call with where this uh, you know this natural rate may go here and we'll hear more from fed chairman powell tomorrow from jackson hole anna wong she's a chief u.s economist for bloomberg economics and you know pretty when she came out with that call i was like whoa because the street was at like two and a half percent at the time yeah. and she came out with this five percent number and she may be proven right when all is said and done
3: you know one of the criticisms of the federal reserve right now and economics at large is simply that they're getting their forecasts wrong paul i'd venture yeah. to say I think the u.s government lost anna wong and that's maybe why yes exactly
1: (laughs) exactly so we're fortunate to have her there
2: all
1: right let's go to amber fairbanks portfolio manager for mirova uh up in boston and that can make sense she's a undergraduate from umass amherst and an mba from boston college so all in boston go yankees uh amber thanks so much for joining us here what's the investment theology, focus, strategy at your firm, Marova?
5: Um, So approach is a sustainable one. We're really looking at exploiting market inefficiencies that we see around long-term secular trends, as well as the belief that the market's really underestimating the risk coming from poor ESG practices.
3: So let's talk about those ESG practices. I mean, to me, it feels like ESG was all the rage maybe two years ago when – the pandemic first struck for a variety of reasons, um, including how we want to really deal with our, our footprint. But I'm curious about how that's evolved in light of, I think, the recent criticism has gotten.
5: Yeah, I think we've seen some recent criticism starting really at the beginning of this year. I know with the Barron's article that came out, there was a similar economist economist article that came out as well. Um, you know, I think that certainly there's there's reasons to be looking a little bit closely at ESG given the popularity. And I think, you know, the criticism contains some grain of truth, um, particularly around the inconsistent implementation of ESG frameworks by investors and and kind of ESG being used as virtue signaling as opposed to really having real world impact. But, you know, I think really these are effective debating points, but really none amounts to anything close to a disqualifying argument. I think really the attention to ESG issues becomes a fiduciary duty to investors and to company managers and directors because of financial materiality. And I think that's the most important point is that, you know, history has really shown that attention to ESG issues is really increasingly important in the creation and preservation of value. And certainly there's been a lot of examples like the BP Deepwater Horizon explosion, you know, Facebook data privacy that have really pointed to the importance of considering ESG issues um, So it really becomes the management of intangible issues around brand and reputation, human capital, for example, so, you know, I think that ESG and shareholder capitalism are really fundamentally about good governance. So the idea that it's kind of about inconsistent implementation, and you know, certainly that's a fair point across some managers, but really by politicizing ESG investing, which I think is what we've seen in the media recently, yep. you're kind of conflating it with virtue signaling and values-based investing and, and really a debate about wokism, where really it's just underestimating the changing nature of business value creation.
1: Amber, give us an example of a, a name that's in your portfolio or something you've recently added and, 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 and how it might fit into your ESG framework.
5: So one of the companies we added um, in December last year and then added two more recently is Mercado Libre. It's an e-commerce and fintech company yep. in Latin America. Such a really interesting company. They're the largest e-commerce company. And I think if you look at the growth of e-commerce in Latin America, only about 6% of retail sales in Latin America are coming from e-commerce. That compares globally to around 18%, so just tremendous opportunity for growth there. The company has a really strong competitive advantage as well. And then within FinTech, you know, if you look at Latin America, about 50% of adults are unbanked. So really to alleviate poverty, to provide for economic growth, these people need access to affordable financial systems, and that's something that Mercado Libre provides. So a company that we were able to add to what we think is a really attractive valuation. It's certainly a growth company. Um, but I, And I think, you know, it's been such a sentiment-driven market, particularly in the beginning of the year with growth selling off so sharply. But a company that continues to put very, very strong fundamentals. So we took our long-term valuation approach and were able to exploit kind of the short-termism that we're seeing in the market today. So,
3: from an ESG perspective, I mean, just shed some light for, for me on this Mercado Libre story because, for our international audience who aren't perhaps as familiar, the way I like to think about it, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that it's kind of the Amazon of, of Latin America to, to some extent, mm-hmm. the eBay, even, if you will. I'm curious why the investing case for Mercado Libre differs from that on Amazon when it comes to an ESG basis. So,
5: with Amazon, there's been a lot of social issues that have us concerned. You have their treatment of workers, for example, <clears throat> as well as their management of third-party manufacturing. And so it's really those social issues that have us concerned around Amazon. I think, you know, from a fundamental perspective, um, from a secular trend perspective, the company is certainly attractive. But it's really the idea that eventually over time, those issues, if not managed correctly, have a financial impact on the company. And I think we've seen that with companies like Amazon to a certain extent, but more companies like Facebook, for example, and, and Alphabet.
1: So Mercedes-Benz is also another name here for you guys. Give us the case there for Mercedes-Benz.
5: So we added Mercedes to the portfolio in March. You know, it's a company that has a really strong plan around the electrification of vehicles. They're targeting 50% of sales from EVs by the year 2025, and then 100% from EVs by 2030. And they put 40 billion euros in CapEx to really retool factories and step up software efforts. And so really a strong plan that we think is addressing that growth towards electric vehicles. You know, it's a company that we bought after the Russia-Ukraine conflict. You know, a lot of concerns in the short term around supply chain. But I think if you look at the long-term value of Mercedes, it's very much intact. So the stock trading at a PE multiple of less than five times has about a 30% free cash flow yield. I think it's a very attractive stock here today.
1: So, Amber, for your clients, do your clients, if for your funds, do they is the ESG part of your offering the primary driver why they're with you guys as opposed to somebody else? Is that your typical client?
5: Yeah, you know, I would say it, it really comes down to performance over the long term, and I think that that's really what's driving the growth of our assets, where you know they've grown tremendously over the last several years, and I think that that's at the end of the day what's going to continue to drive ESG fund flows. Um, It's really that integration of ESG to really help us understand company culture, for example, help us understand the company management team and really how companies are addressing both risks and opportunities around ESG, which we think is very material in the creation or destruction of a company value.
1: Amber, talk to us about data, because, you know, when I go do my financial analysis, uh, you know, I can look at income statements, balance sheets, cash flow statements. They're all audited. I kind of get a sense I can compare and do all that kind of work. Uh, and Bloomberg, actually one of the most widely used functions on the Bloomberg Terminal is FA for financial analysis. Talk to us about the the data that's available to do ESG analysis I've heard that it's it's not nearly as robust as financial data is uh, where's the industry there and what could be done
5: yeah I would definitely agree it's not as robust as you can find in you know balance sheets and income statements as well as on Bloomberg but I think you know it, it's really because there's a subject subjective element right now still at the ESG. There's also not a lot of transparency when you're using a lot of these third-party rating agencies. They're relying a lot on the company disclosures, which can often lead to a large-cap bias where you have companies that are disclosing a lot around ESG data. Um, So for us, it's really about digging deeper. We've really built out our own ESG team so we can take a much closer look at companies. Um, So I think right now there's still an evolution with regards to the third-party data providers. Standardization of that data, I think, will help over time. We're starting to see that regulation, I think, which will be beneficial.
1: All right. Good stuff. Appreciate uh, getting your thoughts. Amber Fairbanks, portfolio manager for the firm Mirova, talking about ESG uh, investing.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
1: All right, let's talk about the uh, private credit business. This is a business I like. I like the yields that investors can get there. Um, And a lot of capital is flowing to that biz. John Klein, he's a managing director and co-portfolio manager of private credit at the firm New Mountain Finance Corporation. John, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about the state year-to-date of private credit because, boy, my equity portfolio has gotten crushed. Even my corporate bond, my treasuries, they were crushed. Um, Talk to us about the private credit market.
6: Sure uh, well, good morning, and thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it and um, when I think about the private credit market, I really think it 's one of the best performing asset classes that 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 we observe here at New Mountain. And I think you're right. I mean, if you own normal fixed income that has true fixed interest rates, uh, you've definitely gotten you know, hurt this year. Uh, when you think about every equity market index that I can think of, except for maybe energy, uh, it's down. Meanwhile, in private credit, we really benefit from the fact that we have floating interest rates, you know, good industry selection, and, uh, and, and that's been a real tailwind for us. But the biggest driver is floating interest rates. And when you have floating interest rates in a rising rate environment, uh, we pay coupons to rise right in line with the Fed increases and that's very important for our investors.
3: So simplify this for me a a, a little bit, when it comes to perhaps some of the things that the market is pricing in here, a very hawkish um, standard, at least for Chairman Powell tomorrow, how does that affect you?
6: So when we think about our portfolios and, and the, the most visible portfolio that we manage is New Mountain Finance Corporation, which, are, which is a publicly traded BDC, you can buy and sell shares every day. When we think about that portfolio, you know it's 90% floating rate loans. So our average loan is going to have a spread of about uh, LIBOR or SOFR plus 600. And essentially, um, as the Fed raises rates those loans are tied to the rate increases in the base rate and so a loan that might have yielded six and a half percent at the beginning of the beginning of the year is now roughly eight and a half percent and and if and if if rates keep going up we could see we could see our loans yielding ten ten percent by the end of the year and so that's very that's a very powerful tailwind for our investors
1: john what are some of the sectors uh that you guys are favoring right now in your portfolio
6: so, so yeah, that's a great question. You know, one thing we we really like about our strategy, and I think the strategy is mirrored by some other uh, good private credit funds, is that we really focus on good uh defensive growth industries we want to invest in businesses that have uh predictability they have natural tailwinds they have growth uh, to their business models and so uh we really gear our portfolio towards those those sectors and i think that's very valuable because when you're in a difficult economic environment the last thing you want in your portfolio is uh volatile industries uh, cyclical industries or secularly challenged industries, and those are the those are the, the the types of companies we really seek to avoid.
1: John, there's a lot of uh, talk that uh, if we're not in a recession already that we're pretty darn close and that's something that people need to put into their models uh, probably for next year. How do you guys think about your portfolio in a recession scenario?
6: So in a recession scenario, I think it ties into a lot of the things I, I just said, which is we want businesses. Uh, that just have that great predictability so we focus on software businesses that sell software every year to the same customers and have high retention we like database companies that provide much much must-have data to their customers not unlike uh, uh, Bloomberg and really what we don't want to be doing in a recessionary environment is we don't want to be taking views on on how many F-150 pickup trucks are going to be built in Detroit next year or what housing starts are going to look like in Arizona we just think that's very tough to predict. And if you're a credit investor, we get paid for delivering consistency of return, making sure that we were able to pocket our coupons and get principal when the maturity is due. So those defensive industries are really where we like to stay.
3: So let's go back macro here because that's my, uh, my safe space, as Paul knows. <laughs> I, I like to do that. I'm, I'm curious about simply the implications here when it comes to liquidity and how that affects private credit. It kind of feels like it's almost marching to the beat of its own drum, but liquidity is an issue that is hitting the public markets very well. If there's a lag for private credit, walk us through the domino effect there.
6: Well, I guess you know. Um, so my safe spade is bottoms up, bottoms up credit analysis. But 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 when I think about you know our overall um, our, our industry, essentially when I think about private credit and the liquidity that we have, is we we just because of floating rates, we're attracting a lot of investor interest, a lot of capital flows that really are attracted to that floating rate secured debt product. And so we basically take the investor inflows that we get into that product, and then we're able to lend to our uh, financial sponsor clients. So we feel good about the overall liquidity in the market. And in general, we see good demand for our loans, because the syndicated market does have liquidity challenges. And so we can really prove to be a very good solution for, um, for folks that want to buy high-quality defensive businesses. Um, uh, and, and that's the way we think about it.
1: John, just uh, 30 seconds. Just how's the deal flow these days with your sponsors?
6: So, so deal flow is good. I mean, when we, when, when we think back to 2021, deal flow is at a record. And I think you know we're, we've come off that record just because the overall economic environment is less strong. But I think our sponsor clients do see good bargains now that the stock market has declined and valuations have settled and so um if if our clients see bargains and the ability to buy good businesses at at better valuations um, we think there's a good opportunity for for solid deal flow going forward even if we don't hit deal flow levels that we saw in 2021
1: all right john thanks so much uh, for taking the time really appreciate getting your perspective here john klein he's a managing director and Co-Portfolio Manager of Private Credit. Uh, The firm is New Mountain Finance Corporation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.